Welcome back to the My Goldfield Discography Podcast. And this is the third episode we're talking about Hergest Rich today. For me, it's probably the greatest of all time. So I don't really know if I should be saying much. <laughs> also, I left my notes at home. So um, words can't do justice to this anyway. Yeah, to, to be as we'll have to give the background info and yes, analysis sure. and everything. <laughs> everything. Um, yeah. So after the um, uh, well, the the um, the success of Tubular Bells, it's not yet reached its peak yet, but um, um, it's allowed Mike to live an independent life as a musician um, without any financial need to be recording projects he isn't fully invested in. He finds a place to move to in the countryside. He moves away from the city and starts working on his second solo album. Um, it's, um, it's, I, I think it's difficult to talk about Hergus Rich in many respects because precisely because it is so minimal in many ways. It allows for such a deep discussion and it, it opens up so many different spaces. And the other one is, and this has always surprised me from a historical perspective, is that there is not a lot to be found on it in terms of um, background information. I find this absolutely stunning as a journalist. Um, maybe it's a sign that the music scene, the, the business was really different back then. Um, it's certainly a sign that Mike Oldfield as a career artist wasn't... Um, It was different from anyone else. I mean, Tubular Bells, at the point when he's moving away to start working on Hergus Ridge, was number one in the UK. It, is, it had already sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It wasn't a big international success yet. That came um, later that year, 1974, when it was used for The Exorcist. Uh, and then basically crossed the pond and, and, and became a huge success in the States as well. But... Still, in the UK, he was he was basically a superstar at this moment. Um, so I would have expected that like the um, the media would have been all over this. Um, it's the sophomore album after the big, incredible success of an album which was never no one believed in originally. So you'd expect there to be a huge uh, interest in this, and still we have virtually nothing. So maybe the great thing, maybe it doesn't matter whether you mean you mean in terms of writing or yeah, in terms of writing, yeah, I think yeah, because it be, be, it was an instant number one, right? yes, yes, so. it was an instant number one. Um, undeniably, it was also um, a fall off from from Tubular Bells. Um, if the numbers are correct, then um, Tubular Bells sold five and a half million in the UK and eighteen million worldwide. Hergus Rich sold apparently around a hundred in the UK and 2 million worldwide. I mean, these are incredible numbers by any means, mm -hmm. but it's still, um, in terms of a follow-up from, from the first album, this is still pretty yeah. heavy one. Yeah. Um, nothing to do with the quality of the music, definitely not. Let's see I mean, where... for, for, for me, the most fascinating aspect of this is that like the way it, it, it usually goes, let's say, with somebody who has accumulated the need to put out music at an early age, They are empty when, when, once they do, and there's nothing like it will, it takes some time to kind of like refill the creative chambers, let's say. <laughs> but, but this album is just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be coming from anything that he's done, at least publicly before. The themes, like the, and, and even like the whole vibe of it is so unique and so special and so different. And like almost instantly, 
you know, after the release of Tyrell Bells, he must have started working on this. Yes. Just on, you know, just, you know, playing on keyboards or on guitars or whatever. And that's sort of like, I still have to say, the most fascinating for me. So, like, even then it was kind of clear already that he's not a one-trick pony. Yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can start off just um, for definition's sake. Um, this is one of the few pieces where um, there are really three different various versions available, um, which I think are far more than just different mixes, as they're called. But we have three realizations of this piece, which are, um, even though the differences are subtle, the effect is, I think, very big. And um, so we have the, the original 1974 mix. We have the 1976, I believe, box mix. And then the 2010 um, yeah, remix and remaster from the deluxe edition. So maybe we can start off just by giving an impression of their differences without getting too nerdy about this. But um, I, I love the fact that we have these three different realizations mm -hmm. of the same material because um, precisely because this is so minimal and so um, re reduced to, to the essence, the, the, the effect even of these relatively minor differences is still tremendous. So to me, the 1974 original mix, this is sort of... Um, a symphonic poem, I think. It has the trumpet in there. It has percussion in there. It has um, the nutcracker um, in there somewhere. I don't know if that is a Tchaikovsky or a ballet uh, reference or just a joke. Then we have um, the interweaving of these patterns. The orchestral Hergestrich, which was done a little later, um, doesn't. It sounds astoundingly. Um, close to this version, because I think even though it's not symphonic, it doesn't have strings, it doesn't have the whole apparatus of the orchestra, it, the way he writes it gives it this symphonic quality. Um, then the 1976 boxed mix, I, I would call this an epic folk fantasy, so he, he tones down the orchestral feeling and, and, the, and the grandeur of, of the original one, and he creates a more, more, even more sparse version, I find this um, to be stunningly beautiful in some places, especially I think the second part, that one is, is to me, is my favorite of all the three ones. Um, and um, I, although I don't particularly like the, the, the opening movement on this one, because it's more guitar-centric, it sometimes almost feels like it's bordering space rock, like it has passages at the end of the first movement which almost border Pink Floyd. It's, it has a beautiful guitar tone. There are passages where the guitar plays passages with the other ones is taken over by different instruments. I think it's fantastic. Mm. And then the 2010 mix is, um, I would call this, um, he, he, he brings back the symphonic elements. He's talked about the, the, the fact that, um, the, the original version had, um, had felt, I think cluttered. I'm not quite sure if that was the word, but he wasn't happy with the, the, the clarity. So now the clarity is possible through the digital medium. So it allows him to, to, to bring in all these elements again, but now they're clear. And he brings uh, elements in that yeah. weren't in any of the other two mixes. Yeah. It's a fascinating mix. Um, yeah. I think it lacks the warmth of the original two, um, but it's, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic. Yeah, I, uh, I, I love it. I have to say, yeah. I mean, like the, um, 
I think we kind of like, if we really want to talk about the mix also, we need to talk about what kind of elements he introduced in terms of arrangement and orchestration, which some of which were kind of like also trademark things that kept going for a long time. So for example, this, I, this idea to combine, to, to, to um, not harmonize, but to double parts, but not to double them with the same sound, to double them with kind of like even contradicting sounds. So you have like a percussive acoustic guitar with a short, with a, with a strong attack and short sustain combined with a sustained electric guitar. Um, which he does a lot on these on these melodies, and then he's also ornamenting the two the the, the doubled instruments uh, differently. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like um, I guess you know some sort of um, uh, orchestra of like I don't know if like a, some people would play tin whistle together, right? They wouldn't really compose how they ornament the parts. They would all ornament them slightly differently. They still play the same melody, but so so you get like sort of this this incredible um, complexity of um, like you could say almost chaos, chaotic. So things things that you don't really, and especially nowadays, you don't do in music production at all anymore. And so when you when you talk about like that it's sort of like reduced and minimal the composition uh, in ways it, it's interesting because i think it's it's highly complex again in parts where there's like themes layered upon a theme and so on where just the uh, accompaniment of the, of the acoustic guitar is already a melody in itself and and actually like really like the biggest feature of Fergus Rich is that the the the, the chord changes, changes themselves are a melody. Mm. So, so if you could only listen to the, to the triads, to the progression of the triads, and that is the melody in itself, right? So, and, and then on top of that, he builds melody upon a melody. And, and that's what kind of like makes these different mixes possible. Yes. You know, I th- so it's, it is, it's, it's important to note that. And um, then realizing in the 2010 version that there were melodies there played on top of things that I didn't know even he had even recorded, that was really fascinating. Especially in the sections where he kind of like left left it down to the chord melodies with the mm-hmm. choir section in part one, for example, where it's, you know, all just the chord changes. It's, uh, it's wonderful. I think he, in the, in the booklet to Box, he says it's an experiment in texture, which is exactly what it is. Um, and I, I love the fact that he's approaching texture from uh, a compositional angle and not from um, a sound angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so he doesn't just hold um, a chord for a very long time. Or, or he, he comes up with, uh, I don't know, um, an electronic patch or something. No, he actually composes the texture. And that's what makes the 2010 mix so interesting. I think that's probably also what you're referring to is that there are sections where elements which used to be textural in the, in the previous versions mm-hmm. are now moving to the fore. And suddenly you realize, oh, it's a melody. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a theme, mm-hmm. um, which can cause irritation, which has caused irritation, even though I think most people now prefer the 2000 mix to the earlier ones. There are sections in there which um, are suddenly um, more or less textural, less ambient, as it were, mm-hmm. um, and now are more in your face. Yeah, and and some extra elements of rhythm guitar, for example, mm-hmm. that people were complaining about. Yeah. But I, w- I was very happy to hear them because it's it's cool. Like you could see that his his world 
and I, I've said that before when we we mentioned Omadon already a little bit in one of the last episodes, is that his plan is much bigger than what we get to hear. Mm. Uh, and we can see this here as well. And, you know, what I noticed again is that this is the a record where he starts using the guitar as an organ. Yes. Like, so he, he overdubs single note lines that could turn, as you say, turn into a texture, into a chord, into a chordal texture, which like the, the most prominent way that he was doing that was in, um, side two of Amadon, the beginning where he just had that huge mm. guitar organ basically. Right. But here in, in Harry's Rich, it's already a, a wonderful device of creating a sort of chordal texture that nobody else had ever recorded. Uh, and in combination with um, different kinds of organs, and here I really don't know which kind of organs he used on this album, but it's it's a really it's a really unique texture. I think Fafisa and Lowry, and then there's a third one which I can't remember. Solina string or yes, something? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, okay. um, and that is that, of course, the additional trick is to use, um, so to, to work on, to use the guitar and create something you could have maybe created sort of much easier with the organs, but you create it with the guitar. And then that is subtly different from, from the actual organs, which are also in the piece. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he kind of like uses, as you say, sort of like a symphonic, symphonic techniques to play individual uh, sustained notes and combines them to like, it's like a string section yeah. kind of thing, but with electric guitar. Yeah, and I really like listening back now. I have uh, started noticing that like the whole record is you know has a lot of that, mm -hmm. which really because when as you say when you listen to it, it's sort of like a background foreground way. Sometimes things kind of like get lost because you're not focusing on them when you're listening. Yeah, and 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 really, um, so there's no real percussion slash drums drum kit on this at all even though i mean in the the original mix you can hear the snare drum very very faintly like in the left channel which i think in the box version it's it's louder yeah. there are some definitely some some weird mixing choices in the first one mm -hmm. um so my i don't know if he if those were intended to be louder actually i'm not quite sure i think for example the voices yeah that is one thing he definitely changed on the on the second version mm -hmm. In 1976, he brought the voices out more to the front. I'm astounded they were mixed so wide, so far back in the original one. I, I think that's, I can't believe this was the intention. I, I'm, so, so the, I think the percussion, it might have been, um, I think the idea, idea might have been there to have them more prominent in the beginning or not to have them at all. But I think some of the choices are surprising looking back. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the, um, the jingly belts. Yes. In the in the first section, right after that, after the bass solo part, I'd say, in both the the first two mixes, uh, you only have the the like sleigh bells, sleigh bells, sleigh bells that's section, what it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, so, but in the 2010 version, that's like well, there's there's a uh, rhythm guitar track on top mm. of that, which is kind of like playing the same kind of rhythm as the. Mm. The sleigh bells, and it's it's very interesting to see. So so there are elements that have that animated um, quality to them, but it's just kind of like you could say like straight like eighth notes and something like that. And um, the whole album is actually based on a rhythm that he's used in tubular bells, which is the dip right? And and he and he and he um, builds a whole section around that rhythm on side two, which is the electrical storm, I think it's called, or something yeah. like that. Thunderstorm? Yeah, or thunderstorm. 
And it's fascinating because there he, because if you have a rhythm like dip, da 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 da, you could start that rhythm in four different places because yeah. it's, it's, and, and so he superimposed that rhythm with itself, but shifted by an eighth note. And it's, I love that section because yeah. if you, you know, if you just don't pay attention, you know, like it turns around and you hear it the other way around, um, you get this sort of like this auditory illusion kind of thing happening there, uh, which has always been fascinating. So, and that kind of like changes the feel of the, of the section before and after in an interest, interesting way where it could feel like a, like a reggae where the accents are on the two and four, but actually they are on two hand and four hand or something. And it's, it's really cool. August Rich, a, raga, a reggae fantasy. <laughs> a reggae fantasy <laughs> and raga fantasy. Yeah, I mean, like drone, uh, it's a good question. You said like he doesn't really use like just a harmonic drone. Uh, it's true, except for the um, very beginning and the very end of part one and the end of part two, um, where there's like a really beautiful, wonderful drone, just like the E minor chord on, a, on an F sharp bass note. Um with some also some chromatic notes in the in the uh, ornamentation or the acoustic guitar and stuff, it's really um, it does have these moments of of drone music. Let's say there are also a couple melodies on both sides, sort of like transitional melodies, which are really dissonant. Mm -hmm. um, so where where it's sort of like the opposite of of the other sections where things are organized and. And where, where there's this, and I mean, like, um, so there's one very, very interesting thing about the theme or the themes that he uses in this album. This, you know, this trick to actually create a melody that is modulating, right? So it goes to a different key. Um, that is something that is, is used in music all the time, right? So in classical music, also in pop music, where you have like the last chorus mm -hmm. is transposed up a whole step or something like that, right? But here, what he does is that the, the basic theme is just, it's particularly um, pronounced in the, the beginning of the second half. It's an eight bar, it's an eight bar melody, right? But he has sort of like two versions of it. And the, the modulation, like so the modulation happens not at the end, as it normally would with, with most people, happens in the middle. So it's the first four bars and the second four bars. So he has two versions of the second four bars, mm -hmm. and um, and you have a different do you have a different modulation? So you so it's cool because it feels very seamless because you're expecting the harmonic change to kind of like to 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 the modulation to happen at the end of the uh, of the eight bars it happens right in the middle, yeah. And that that is so such a cool thing that kind of contributes to this feel of it being such a flow. You know, and with incantations where he did this like to the to the extreme, this modulating thing, uh, that is like even like is more simplistic in a way. Like with Hercus Rich, is more hidden and beautiful, and and sort of like the the melody goes into sort of like an inversion of itself, so it sounds as if it's the same thing, but it's really not. And yes. uh, very cool. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so last week we um, we talked about this a bit already. Because last week we were originally going to record this podcast, which we we're talking, um, like which we're recording now, but I had forgotten the um, SD card of, of, of the um, recorder we're using, so we couldn't actually tape it. But we, I think, we had a few um, preliminary conversations about this, and I showed you um, a sort of um, a timeline which I created of the two movements with my interpretation of the of the themes used on this. 
It was interesting for me to see when I browse the forums is that I think most people are not aware how um, few themes there are. And then I showed you this, and I think my my version has um, three themes essentially mm-hmm. um, for forty minutes of music. And um, and then you said, well, you could actually say that it's one theme. And thinking about this more and more, I think could be true. And since you've seen the score, it would be interesting to me. It seems like something I noticed on um, Return to Armadon particularly as well is that it's almost like he's using the, the, the original theme and then chopping smaller segments and then using them for a second theme, different rhythm, like different rhythm, different meter, different um, feeling. But it's almost like he's like there's a stem cell, and then from this stem cell he creates everything else, and that gives it this coherence, and at the same time allows different um, um, emotional, um, like a different emotion attached to these um, feelings, also uh, these sections. Is that do you think that after looking at the score that we're really working these we're really working with essentially one theme? There are definitely very um, similar um, interval jumps and 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 um sort of um yeah yeah i I think you know with with this album album in particular and also with incantations it's first of all it's a i i i you know the the melody is the the harmony is the melody right so you that that uh, as i've already said so the progression itself is a harmonic flow and so that's why what happens is that the melodic themes that are being used are so the second the second half second part mm-hmm. right the melody is very clear right it's also fast enough let's say so that you can grasp it like as a melody that's a repeating melody with the uh, first side it's 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 slow and it's slow in such a way that you kind of kind of like get drawn into it you don't it, it's not that he's kind of like shoving it in your face, let's say, like, here is the... And and so really, it's it all is just sort of like a variation of, uh, of a set of ideas, right? I would just call it ideas, not necessarily um, themes or whatever, right? because, as you say, the, the he, he constantly goes between, as you say, taking a little motif from something and working with that rather than the whole thing. So, so it's like this zooming in and zooming out out of the parts and leaving spaces yes. and, and also, and this is not to be underestimated, also using counterpart, counterpoint a lot in this record. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, when you're talking about the, um, the trumpet, yeah, I mean, like in some mixes you hear, it looks like it's like one, just one trumpet and you hear the other mix and you hear, oh, okay, there's actually two, two trumpets playing counter, you know, the mm. counter, counter movement and stuff like that. And it's really, um, it's really difficult unless you would want to, and I'm, I'm kind of like not even interested in, in analyzing everything completely. It would be possible, but so the big with, with Hergis Ridge, the thing that I noticed most is that there is this part that later or at some point was released, I don't know, as a single or but as the Spanish tune, which is the second section and the penultimate section on uh, side two, that is a unique theme. So that one, and not, not just melodically, but 
and and this is where the where the big difference lies harmonically. So where everything else on the album is just sort of like a simple triad based harmony, um, the Spanish tune has much more complex chords. Really, kind of, he seems completely out of his element. I mean, not that it doesn't sound like it's it's his element, but in terms of a com composition, like to suddenly take these complex chords with all those extensions is really um, is really sticking out. Yeah, it's it's only five minutes of music in total yeah. uh, on this on, on the entire album, and it feels like the main theme. It's it's it because it's in such a such a non sequitur. It's just um, it appears out of nothing, then returns. It doesn't um, evolve. I have a theory about that, but it's um, I agree. This is really this one sticks out. It's it sticks out, and it's totally unexpected too because you, we don't get to hear that in the well. Actually, actually, I mean, I mean, it's again, it's not not a hundred percent true what we're saying. It is like the the coda of the Spanish tune is also the coda of the of the choir piano and choir part and on part one. <clears throat> and also the um, intervals are again similar. It, it, yes, but but it's but still <laughs> it is it is different. And also like what what is cool that these complex chords, and that's why. I would kind of like also at some point it would make would be interesting to make a proper musical analysis of the whole piece. Um, a lot of the extension and extensions of the chords, stuff like that, happens via the uh, harmonic information that's introduced by the melodies. Mm -hmm. So, so even though you may have like just a simple three-note chord, a triad sitting underneath, the melodies they really don't do what you would expect. Uh, them to do again. This is something that, um, in some parts of um, side two of Triple Bells, he's doing, where like there are two melodies that coincide that use the like a yin yang yin and yang version of the notes from the scale, yeah. right? And and something like that is is happening here as well in a very very um, subtle and beautiful way. And so when you um, as uh, when you want to compose something that has sort of like a, should I say, you're kind of crossing different, different kind of keys and also unrelated keys with each other. So there is there is a, a device called like a medians. Like so, what you would do, you would use you would go from A minor to C minor. So which, so the, those two chords or notes, the notes, those three notes, they are not necessarily part of the same scale, but some of the notes are right. And what he does here with um, the theme that sort of transposes in the middle, as I said, is um, he uses actually a tritone relationship. So he goes from an E minor to a B flat major chord. This is in the Spanish. No, no, it's the first. It's the first tune on the second half, mm -hmm. which again is a variation of the first tune of yes. the first half, but uh, of the first part. Um, but anyway, it's sort of like this this kind of thing where. He does not go to the cliches where you would do a, th a relationship that's a third. So he actually takes the tritone relationship and kind of like, but then by going from minor to major, it keeps it sort of in the ballpark. So it is, it is kind of like, um, like modally related and only one note needs to get changed. Mm. Um, you know, in the melody, but it's, it's sort of kind of like opens, opens this whole, um, 
it, it's it's fascinating. Like I, I I wouldn't really know how it how it sounds like to people who don't have no uh, music theory knowledge or you know musical training, but it clearly is something that is magical, unexpected, and and sort of uh, artful mm. in a way that for me contradicts terms like that it's simple. If you know what I mean. Right? Yes. Right. It isn't simple. No, no. Okay. Um, I said uh, reduced. Um, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about what you said. I mean, in the general, it's like like that. That is, uh, I've said, and I've said this before that there's like this. M Mike Oldfield makes things sound simple. Yes. Right. Because he can, and that's wonderful. Even though he's, I think he's gone on record to say that this record was anything but simple to make. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that wasn't uh, a question of the musical. Um, the musical challenges is more that um, the motivational challenges um, to actually finish it. There were two studio sessions booked, which never yielded anything. Um, ultimately, of course, it was done pretty quickly then. And Tom Newman was involved, right? Yes. And the demo, which yes. is which is on the deluxe edition, 2010 deluxe edition, um, shows that he had pretty much, you know, hmm. already recorded the whole piece before. Yeah. It got committed in its in its final version, and then it wasn't the final version, as you said. Yeah, yeah, right. And maybe maybe the fact that he was that it was such a struggle to make kind of led to him kind of being a little bit dismissive of the piece over the years. I think so. Yes, I have my theory how the box um, version came about. He's, I've seen several interviews from him over the years, and the one thing he's always stressed is that he's not writing orchestral music. He's very, very particular about that, which is weird because these days, many um, artists um, who are definitely not composers try to, to, to um, define themselves as composers. Um, despite, and I'm not necessarily trying to make composers more than what they are, but I think it's a certain... Um, craftsmanship um, that you uh, acquire, which many artists simply do not have. And it seems like he's trying to get away from being stigmatized into being a composer of orchestral, uh, new orchestral music. Um, he, want he wanted to be something different. And then when, when tubular bells became so big and when uh, there was this recording of the symphonic tubular bells and, and Hergest Ridge, I think when he, when he heard these versions, I think I, I'm, I'm not sure about the Tubular Bells one, but the Hergus Ridge version, I think we both agree, is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, it's whatever you think about the the, the the orchestral Tubular Bells, I think the Hergus Ridge version is is actually incredible. Um, I'm not saying it's better, but it's it's as good, and it's um, there's a sections in there which work incredibly well on strings. So I'm I, I have this this idea that after seeing the orchestral Hergis Ridge, I think rather than what is written in Changeling, where he says that it wasn't bad, but it wasn't the way I wanted it to be played, I think he realized that it was actually better than he thought it would be. And in because it this version would have probably, if released, would have put him more into the orchestral corner, I think he actually reduced it down to something which was less symphonic in the in the boxed version mm -hmm. just for for him because he felt um more at home even though the work itself clearly i mean the opening the opening minute to me i don't know if it's 
like we can, we won't be able to prove it, but it's so similar to Mahler's first symphony, the opening um, bars of Mahler's first symphony. There's the drone, there's the intervals, like the Mahler's first symphony. It's, it's, it's reduced to very primal um, intervals and, and, and then working with them and, and keeping this sustained atmosphere before it actually, the, the music opens up into into a more tangible composition. There's, there's very similar, like big similarities. Um, yeah, there, there are a few things you just said that I want to comment on. So first of all, again, like going back to the question, like how many themes are there? <clears throat> I think what we get is basically one theme yeah, with different kinds of ornamentations, right? That's the way to look at it. Mm. And then they are presented at different speeds. So that means at some point, like an ornamentation becomes an actual noticeable melody when it's slowed down mm. and, and, and it's, it's stuff like that. And we should not forget that as far as I understand, David Bedford was involved at least in arranging the, the choir. Oh, okay. uh, and, and then David Bedford did the, the orchestral version, right? So the, um, the sort of collaboration of the level of composition getting, and I mean, this, this is kind of, it's kind of like sad that we don't know anything about it in which way he may have kind of like, like discussed it or played it to his peers and gotten, gotten feedback on it. You know, did, did you talk about the piece with David Bedford? I'm pretty sure he did. And, and then the, the fact that the orchestral version happened, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we just don't know like in how far there was any sort of like plan uh, in the first place to kind of like make something like that happen. And it, you say it works incredibly well. It, it, in fact, yeah, it does. It's just, it's just sort of interesting to hear that the, uh, say the, the, the bluesy guitar melodies played by clarinets and oboes and you know, yes. how, how well that works. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and, and, and like the, the, the really high kind of like aching, uh, beautiful guitar, distorted guitar melodies with all those bends and stuff played by a viol solo violin, you know. And the <laughs> bass really played by a cello, which actually I think is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the rhythmical, like the bass work on the orchestral tuba was, I don't think is very successful. This no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work at all. But this works really, yes. really well. Yeah. So no official recording of that one yet. Um, so probably also no podcast on it, but it's, it, 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 I think it warrants, um, a recording. Um, oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, I actually saw, like, I can't remember when, like maybe five, six years ago, there was, um, tubular bells, the David Bedford version was, was played in London again. And I, I was there and yeah, it is, it's not very satisfying. Mm. Um, especially if, and this is something we pointed out already. If the if the conductor doesn't really have control over the temples properly, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, like speaking of Hugs Rich, yeah, like uh, um, uh, you know, if that score, the orchestral score, would be played again, that would be quite something. I mean, you've um, you've hinted at it, uh, sort of that that making of it was not very um, happy, and probably the time wasn't very happy. I think, in a way, this is. Um, like a basic psychology thing is that tubular bells was made when he was forced to interact with other people through work. Um, he played in a band. He was, uh, 
Um, yeah, it was fun on stage. They, they, um, it wasn't always fun, but it was uh, fun a lot of the time. Um, he had, had different projects going on. Um, there was um, a lot going on. He was growing, etc., etc. And then, but maybe, probably not. That probably wouldn't have been his ideal version of his career. So then he records Tubular Bells, and it, everything's in there. Um, his entire life up to that point, mm-hmm. and then. He moves, and then he has the financial fr- uh, freedom to to go to the countryside and do what he ever wanted to do. But, just but you know, you say financial freedom, but as far as I remember from Changeling, from his book, it's like he yeah. he got fifteen pounds per 20, week or something, yes. or something <laughs> like that. Um, so even though that was a big success, but he didn't he didn't really uh, receive any of that it took money. A long time, and, yes. Yeah, and and uh, I remember. Wasn't it that there, there was no heating or something? Yeah, he got a heating, freezing, I think, or? at the end of, um, after he recorded it, and then he got a um, heating which worked. Mm-hmm. Yes. But he was at least, I mean, he could, he could afford to, to, to move away from the city and, um, and, and, and just focus on music, on his music. Mm-hmm. And I think this was probably his dream, and it didn't turn out to be a dream in practice, which isn't all that strange. I think when, when you're um, uh, a withdrawn person, you wish your life to be withdrawn, And then, um, this is also speaking partly from personal experience. And then when you actually do get away from everyone and everything, it's actually harder in a way because you're thrown back to yourself in many respects. Mm-hmm. I think that what makes this music fantastic, probably. I mean, it's, it's, it has this, um, mood which goes throughout, but it has, ve- if it, if it does break from this mood, it's really violent and, um, well, violent. It's, It's, it's it's sort of explosive. It's really mm-hmm. it, it moves quickly from from one from the calm to the to the um, energetic and, and loud. These these transitions are very ex- extreme and, and quick, and um, so that does indicate the certain turmoil, inner turmoil. Yeah, but but the the, the funny thing is though that so again speaking of themes, like what counts as a, as its own theme. There is the theme <laughs> uh, before the, the second time the Spanish theme, yes. Spanish tune comes. And that is sort of like a really beautiful short folk kind of melody. And that is the melody that the loud section uses. Yes. So, so it's really, it's really funny. So yeah. in a way we get sort of like the aggressive loud part is based on this jolly folk tune right so but it get we get presented with the with the loud version first and then we get the release into the just what is it like just acoustic guitar and organ or something like you know and then it goes to the spanish tune and um again it's sort of like a fascinating Thing, fascinating idea to arrange uh, this, like a light melody with a heavy sound, and that that's sort of like happening kind of like throughout the album somehow. Like like I said, you you get these these kind of combinations of sustained sounds and um, short sounds, and also like the relentlessness of the do 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 do, do which is the accompaniment for the first the ten minutes. Right, yes. and and so it's it, it's, um, which is actually also Malari. Now I'm now you're actually singling it out. This is also similar to a theme from the first symphony. I don't know. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. 
and then again, like I wouldn't say there's anything really that relates back to um, Hergestrich much, with the exception of some parts of Return to Omadon, where there's like a yes, you know, clear, yeah. yeah. Um, and other than that, yes, like maybe this combination of of acoustic, um, you know, plug guitar sounds with the sustained electric guitar sounds, you get that interestingly enough on records like uh, guitars, mm. um, and uh, yeah, also some other records. But it's really um, there's nothing really that is very obviously mm. being re reharvested throughout his career. I'm, I'm, this is a question which I'm curious about your opinion on. Is um, and I hinted at this when we when we spoke about this um, previously. Is that to me it always feels like um, the first three albums are more than just a trilogy because they're closely written in close association, but because they do share a sort of <coughs> um, musical DNA. Um, the opening um, section, which to my in my calculations goes on for about eight minutes, eight minutes, is based on or ha shares melodic elements from the finale of the first movement of Tubular Bells. Um, and then the Spanish tune with the singing mm -hmm. um, to me has is, is a hint to what's to come, which is Omadon. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to be sort of a link between these two works. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't yet made the experiment, that's something maybe for next time, um, to actually listen to them um, in succession, in sequence. Um, what I do find is that although he stressed that it's it's not that it's very different from Tubular Bells, and I think we've established that it's different from it, they, he does play with the fact that it's the second album. I've thought about this um, just as a thought experiment. What would have happened if Hergis Rich had been his first album? Then he'd recorded Tubular Bells. But it's not possible. Um, I don't think that the way they're written, that is even possible. For example, if you take the, the bass, the solo bass line mm -hmm. in the opening movement of Hergis Ridge, that is sort of something that harks back to Tubular Bells, or something they share. And then in Tubular Bells, it goes into this finale. But here it doesn't. It actually goes back to something that was previously, it doesn't yet fulfill. Mm -hmm. And then in the second movement, it does lead into something, but it's it's sort of an anticlimax as well because it goes into this passage which to most listeners is really monotonous. I don't think it's monotonous really because mm -hmm. what is happening is happening sort of behind this wall of, of brutal sound. Mm -hmm. But still, I think it's anticlimactic as well. So he, he's playing with the fact that the baseline leads into this gorgeous finale in Tubular Bells and here it leads into something, either to nothing or something very unexpected. So he plays with the fact that as a listener, we are aware of Tubular Bells, I think. I mean, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good point and something we should really maybe talk about for every album. Like, what is the relation to Tubular Bells and do, do we get any Tubular Bells themes in it? First of all, Hergis Rich has the instrument Tubular Bells in it mm. um, that, as the, the climax or end of the first, sec, uh, first yes. section before the outro, right? First part, sorry. And... Um, also, and this is something that we haven't really talked about yet, but we actually get, so you know that Mike at some later point said that the tubular bells was inspired by um, the um, Toccata and Fugue 
a part, actually the fugue part, right, of yeah. um, Bach, Bach's piece. And so here we get in August Rich, we get the actual, the actual part, mm. right? Like, so with a high note is the hammer. Mm. You know? We get that as the accompaniment comes in, right? At the beginning when the, when the theme, when the chords start moving under the theme at the very beginning of the piece, right? So it's really, it's really, really cool that he does to manage to build that in. And it sort of like is not something that is in the, in the foreground, but it's, it's fascinating. And then kind of like some of the, some, some of the, the, the melodies, like the, how the, like I said, the slower melodies are broken up into these ornaments. You can hear these kinds of movements with the, like the alternation with one note and like the other, the other voice kind of like moving up and down. You can hear that too. And, um, it's pretty cool. And in that, in that regard, like when we look at, as you say, you call it like a trilogy or maybe more than a trilogy on the first three albums. Um, I find that they are each very, they each have like a very, very unique starting point that is kind of like f interestingly like more different than you would expect. But then seeing how, obviously, because like as a, as a musician, you have sort of like a repertoire that you can kind of draw from also, like, like in, in physically, like what can you actually play? Yes. And so there are certain, certain similarities always, yes. Um, and I totally agree, like that the Spanish tune and then the, the, the Sang Amadon, section you know that that sort of like is is clearly related it's even partly the same singers i mean it's oh yeah yeah for sure for sure also on um Amadon, like the there, there's tubular bells you know the instrument tubular bells i'm i'm pointing this out because it's interesting because later on in his career we have a, a, an, a track which is kind of very close to the structure of tubular bells that's called the wind chimes so the mini tubular bells right yes. and uh And yeah, I think we should always kind of like point out these relationships as well there. And um, just as a side note, I think the um, on the 2010 mix, that section where the tubular bells comes in in the first section, that's the most beautiful recording of the tubular bells that we've ever had. It's so incredibly gorgeous. It captures the metallic glow of this instrument so perfectly. It's just, it's worth listening to their music just for, for the sound of the tubular bells on that one. It's more far more beautiful than on tubular bells. Yes. It's of course understated. It's not... It doesn't try to be uh, in your, like this, this triumphant thing, but it's, mm -hmm. it's triumphant in its way because of this understatement, because it's rich and, uh, and, and luminous. And, um, it's, it's funny. So like now that we're talking about it, um, so on platinum, mm. yeah, I got rhythm, the cover song. That's the one that has the tubular bells on it. And it's, it's, it's sort of, it's interesting how, I mean, it's kind of cool, you know, you, you, you sort of like have, um, <laughs> have some sort of like random success, let's say, <laughs> with yeah. something. And then you, you can start re, reutilizing these, these, these iconic elements. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, um, it, it, I think it's cool, especially because it's, it's not one thing. It, it could be sort of a, like a painter signing his paintings mm -hmm. uh, in the corner. Um, that could be the, could be it, but I think it's more, and I think um, you've referred to it as a sort of um, a metaphoric language, mm -hmm. which I think is probably a great way. Also, maybe um, I'm just came to think about this uh, now is that because he, he's really 
emphasize that he's not a composer. Maybe it's it's this, the, the the sheer joy of of um, enriching his music with these secret messages, which you have to dig into, um, and and you have to be sort of an, an you have to be initiated mm-hmm. to fully appreciate it. But it's not about being clever. It's sort of um, it's 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 like a, <clears throat> a game on a on a very a very high level game, um, and and you're either in or you're out. You know, there like I have um, two associations now with things that he has said or written. So, for example, at the very end of um, the book Changeling, which is like sitting here on the table with us, <clears throat> he says that, um, and that was like maybe 2007 or so. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, I, in the future, I want to be my music as simple or as mathematical as it wants to be. So mm-hmm. you could clearly see that he is, is, is thinking in those terms. Right. Yeah. And I remember um, an interview, like a radio interview um, from around um, the QE2 times, where he was also saying that he's still striving for, aiming for like the most spiritual mm. um, experience with his music. I find that fascinating, right? Like, like folkloristic, spiritual, mathematical. Mm. And that sort of like really describes what he does. And, and especially, like, Jewel Bells is the exception, right? That is sort of like the first, that's the coming out, right? So, so, and, and everything is sort of like, like, like a little, has a little bit feral energy, mm. right? Where, um, where Hugstridge is very, very, um, considered. And like, funny that you keep pointing out that he has said he's not a compo- composer as in a classical composer, but very clearly is. Yeah. You know, especially with this work, you know. Maybe, so. maybe I'm misquoting him on the composer thing, but he's definitely been very uh, strictly against this symphon- this idea that he's composing orchestral or symphonic music. Yes, I mean it's it's because it's because what he does with his orchestration with this instrumentation is so much sounds so much cooler. <laughs> yes, and maybe also <laughs> and, because and, he's actually doing it himself. Yeah. You know, he's doing it himself, and um, whereas the composer. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating now, and this is of course tongue in cheek. But the composer can sit back and have the musicians um, play his music yeah, or her music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for for him, the the actual sound, the texture, the performance, like we said, the tempos, everything is so 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 important. It's tied to really what the music is that you can't really. It's. It, I don't think it has anything to do with being a control freak or anything. It's just that, so if you know, you need a certain ratio let's say of ingredients uh then you have and otherwise it doesn't work then you have to kind of make sure that it does work Mm. right and and you could say oh then that means it's not a good composition if you can't just play it on an acoustic guitar and it works or you know Mm. like people say that kind of thing um but and then again i think as it's sort of in hindsight if you like go back and you pick any melody anything any part of any of his albums and you play that that on a piano or on a like on a solo instrument on an acoustic guitar it's go it's it it's incredibly beautiful and works apparently what he said is that most of the music gets written on the piano rather than the guitar which is yes. interesting yes and which which again like i'm not exactly sure if that's always true when you when you hear some some um, guitar improvisations where he's playing music that like in a in a professional recorded form was never performed on a guitar, mm. so it can also be the other way around sometimes. Mm. Yeah. 
I was um, I was interested in your opinion on because I saw the, the in the books in the box booklet there are very nice images of I think the recording space or the, the composing space he's he's um, he used to work on Hergest Ridge. and there is like an uh, the, he he lines up his wall with all the guitars mm -hmm. and a few of the basses he's playing and it's it's a lot of guitars I mean it's more probably around ten different guitars. Can you, as a guitarist, can you hear that? Is that is that a sonic question? Is it a question just of performance? But one, like one of them is, is loud. You, well, you know, on tribal bells, you only used one electric guitar. Yeah. And um, I don't know, a couple acoustics, I guess. You know, like you used the uh, metaphor of painting, mm. being a painter. So it's just like having more options for sounds. And yes, you can hear it. Like there's a nylon string guitar, it's a steel string guitar, it's a yeah, different sounding electric guitars. You know, back then, like I don't know, like the electric guitar side, I I feel there's like still. It's also because he's such a, a, a you know distinguishable player. Mm. Like you, you don't really uh, <laughs> the instrument doesn't count that much. With the exception of like the the different sounds he de developed over the years, mm. so when he then kind of became a strat player, which sort of like, as far as I understand, was inspired by Mark Knopfler, even that is a very unique sound, him playing strat. But that was later on in his career. Mm. So here it's pretty much about um, color palette, I would say, okay. and um, he was playing acoustic acoustic bass guitar quite a bit uh, around that time. And and everything uh, has this sort of uh, folksy acoustic, uh, open sounding uh, vibe about it, and it's it's great, you know. Kind of kind of creates this very very unique. Uh, I think like what people call about like the like the pastoral sound of of Hergus Rich is also very much in the in the orchestration, in the inst instrument used. Oh yes, definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah, the tin whistles. Right? Tin that's, whistles, yeah. Yeah, that, that's really a very, very unique, very unique sound. And I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure we're like missing out on a few like really <laughs> major, like important things. But I think like we've mostly covered it. And like, I, like I said at the beginning, for me, this is maybe. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to say because I love his music so much. But Hugh's um, Rich is really is pure perfection. And I, I really hope that people will will check it out if they haven't heard it. Do you prefer any of the mixes? Um, I, I suppose you you got no. to know the piece through the um, the CD version. No, I think it was the box. The, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, the box mix, which yeah. was on the CD, right? No, but I I also had the the vinyl uh, early on. So, and I don't don't exactly remember which version I heard first. I think it was the boxed version that I heard mm. first. And but I I have to say like of all of the deluxe editions, all of the remixes he did, Herbert's Rich is the best. Yes, I agree also that. also yeah. the 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 surround version, the five point one version, uh, is really incredible. It's one of the more more convincing. Um, so I, somehow he must have really felt inspired and happy working on that again, whereas on some yeah. other uh, reissues, like it felt like it was lazy, you know. But here, this was. Uh, He's definitely had lots of good positive feedback. I know um, he, he's mentioned that people from the industry came up to him and said, um, you know, Tubular Bells is great, but um, I really, really, really like August Ridge, which was, I think was surprising to him. And then mm -hmm. <clears throat> my initial thought was that he, um, 
he wanted to get it right this time, which could have been a sign of dissatisfaction, but I don't think so, because then he would have, I agree, he would have approached it with less um, I, I th detail. I think Omar Dawn is really maybe the the record where he got got into the studio with uh, with the intention mm -hmm. of doing something that sort of like sets the record straight somehow. And in a way, in a way, the record conflict uh, is successful in that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, something we forgot. So, so there's the people don't usually think of Mike Oldfield as a virtuoso, but he is. Yeah. And um, so there's the Omadon, like the fast triplety solo in the middle of uh, part one, which, funnily enough, here at the beginning of, of part two, we have that kind of mm -hmm. fast triplet electric guitar part in the background, which is very, very cool and very, very uh, unique to him. Um, you know, that that's sort of like another sort of element that kind of like points to the future. And but uh, having said that, like he really, really never because he has and did have so many musical memes, let's say, to draw from from the very beginning. It's not that he had to overdo one thing so much. Yes. Like like people may criticize him for like like okay always referring back to triple belts, which it's fine because like it it's him, right? So but anyway, so so this this fast triplety thing, he only he didn't do that so much. Like you find it, you find it, as I said, you find it in Hogs Rich on Armadon, you find it on Amarok, obviously, right? You find it a little bit, maybe say in albums like uh, Five Miles Out, and uh, but then like the, this kind of um, musical device is hasn't been kind of used otherwise, and it, and then it's cool because like you could say okay he's used the tubular bells on all albums or a variation of that, but it's more interesting to see okay which things did he not use on particular albums, like when we're getting to the songs of Distant Earth for example where he suddenly changes his style like. 180 degrees, yes. like incredible, right? And so, so I'm I'm looking forward to getting to that. So, um, do you want to have the last word today? Um, I'm not sure, but I, I, I just one thing which about the guitar thing, which I think we may get into later, and especially with Omadon, is that the virtuoso thing for me has been in in the sound itself, because I think getting this sound so clear and so direct and um, almost like you can hear almost his fingers in in the sound uh, yes. creating it yes um i think that that has always been the virtuoso aspect of it exactly exactly you know his playing technique to stop all the strings all the time which like electric guitarists usually don't do yeah you know and that's that's why you get what like the clarity and the 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 voice like uh, quality like of his playing is really is totally yeah. unique well, if I have to have the last word, then it would be that um, you said that it's to you it's maybe the greatest of all time. Um, funny thing is, it's also to me that um, that if we ever get to do a um, a ranking video which would or ranking podcast, which would probably be against sort of our beliefs, probably it would be my number one as well. Which yeah. is interesting because it hasn't been that way for um, for forever, but um, over time it's 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 kept growing. Yes. In yeah. my um, appreciation. Yes. Okay. Thanks for listening. Uh, Harvest Rich, please check it out. Uh, the Goat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and see you next time. Bye. <laughs>